There's always one resisting, doesn't want to go. <laughs> now, before we, get, we go any further this morning, I'm just, uh, I'm just thinking over the weekend about the, the tremendous absolute accuracy of the prophetic word in Scripture. All of us, I'm sure, have seen over this past uh, few days since Thursday, uh, this, those scenes in Libya where uh, Gaddafi, Colonel Gaddafi, that tyrant for 42 years with his brutal regime has been brought to an end and how that uh, Gaddafi was found by the revolutionaries and uh, dragged out of that storm pipe, beaten and then finally uh, shot in the head and killed. And uh, that's not the end of it, of course, because then he was placed, him and his son, one of his sons, who was also a cruel, uh, wicked man, and they were placed in that refrigerated unit and uh, put on public display. And uh, the people are still lining up to see his body, to see their bodies, and to take photographs of their mobile phones. And there's scenes of jubilation uh, all over uh, Libya. And uh, it's just a remarkable, uh, gruesome, macabre scene that we've been witnessing. And it reminded me uh, somewhat of chapter 11 of the book of Revelation. And how that uh, God will send two witnesses. Who they are, we're not exactly sure. It may be Elijah and Moses or Elijah and Enoch. And they will speak judgment to the nations and uh, those who try to kill them will be burned up supernaturally. It will be the biggest news item. It will be all over the world. It will be centered mainly in Jerusalem. And let me just read just this portion before we get to our main thing this morning from Revelation 11. Verse 3, it says, I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. So that's three and a half years. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut up heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. And when they finish their testimony, in other words, at the end of three and a half years, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the streets of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. So this is speaking of Jerusalem. Then those from the peoples, now note this, then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and will not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. 
Now the accuracy of prophecy is this. That John prophesied this 2,000 years ago. And we are the only generation in 2,000 years could actually see this come to pass by virtue of satellite TV. No other generation in history could possibly understand how it could be that something happening in Jerusalem could be seen by the nations of the world all over the earth. And yet this week we have saw with our own eyes two dead bodies in Libya and with the technology we have even with mobile phones and satellite it was beamed in an instant the very moment it was happening all over the whole earth. Are we not living in the very last of the last days? Because all these prophecies are all fitting into place and the stage is being set for the end time. After three and a half days, the breath of the life of God entered them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. In the same hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Earthquake, seven thousand people were killed, and the rest were afraid, and gave glory to the God of heaven. Not that it's going to happen, but could you imagine that Gaddafi and his son, after three and a half days, could you imagine that they suddenly stood up on their feet? Can you imagine the great fear that would come upon everybody? Well, that's what's going to happen to God's two witnesses. And the whole world will wonder when they see it. When's it going to happen? We don't know. But all we know is it's close. It's soon. Technologically, we're ready right now for it to happen. And so if you're wondering about the Bible, is it true, is it accurate? Never doubt it. Never doubt it. Even though it may take thousands of years, but the Word of God will stand true and it will be happen as it was said in the Word of God. Amen. All right, now we want to uh, go in the Word of God this morning to Exodus chapter 28. Exodus chapter 28. And also Exodus chapter 39. So if you could find those two places for me, that would be good. So Exodus chapter 28, and we're going to be reading from verse 36. You shall also make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it, like the engraving of a signet, holiness to the Lord. And you shall put in it, sorry, you shall put it on a blue cord, that it may be on the turban. It shall be on the front of the turban. So it shall be on Aaron's forehead, 
that Aaron may bear the iniquity of the holy things which the children of Israel hallow in all their holy gifts, and it shall always be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. And you shall skillfully weave the tunic of fine linen thread, and you shall make the turban of fine linen, and you shall make a sash of woven work. For Aaron's sons you shall make tunics, and you shall make sashes for them. And you shall make hats for them, for glory and beauty. So you shall put them on Aaron your brother and on his sons with him. You shall anoint them, consecrate them, and sanctify them, that they may minister to me as priests. And you shall make for them linen trousers to cover their nakedness, that they shall reach, that they shall reach from the waist to the thighs." They shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they come into the tabernacle of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place that they do not incur iniquity and die. It shall be a statute forever to to him and his descendants after him. And then in Exodus chapter uh, 39, reading from verse 27. They made tunics artistically woven of fine linen for Aaron and his sons, a turban of fine linen, exquisite hats of fine linen, short trousers of fine woven linen, and a sash of fine woven linen with blue, purple, and scarlet thread made by weaver, made by a weaver as the Lord had commanded Moses. And they made the plate of the holy crown of pure gold and wrote on it an inscription like the engraving of a signet, holiness, to the Lord, they tied it to it with a blue cord to fasten it on above the turban as the Lord had commanded Moses. Let's just stop there. This morning we're going to uh, conclude this examination of the high priest's garments. And we have looked at the various uh, pieces of clothing. We have looked at the linen coat uh, you can see here on their diagram above us, and uh, we have looked at the robe of the ephod, and we have looked at the ephod, and uh, through all of these things we have seen Christ, our great high priest. These things are symbolic, of course, and even though they were real and meaningful to the uh, Jewish people in those days, the Israelites but they're far more meaningful to us because we see Christ in them. And this is the beauty of reading these Old Testament passages. When you see Christ step out of the pages of the Old Testament that we've seen in type and symbolism, now we see the reality. And also we have examined the uh, breastplate of judgment and the 12 beautiful gemstones which were inscribed uh, with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And uh, as we looked at those, uh, we saw often in looking at those ourselves as believers. And we saw ourselves in type, we saw character, we saw nature, uh, we saw what we ought to be and how we should live and so forth. And so uh, those were reflective of our lives as believers, even though they were talking about the 12 tribes of Israel. And so today we're going to round all of this up 
And we're going to be looking at the very last few pieces of the high priest garments that he wore. And again, this will highlight for us Christ and all of his uh, glory and all of his wonderful nature and character and ministry and works. And hopefully, we'll also see somewhat uh, of what God demands of ourselves into the bargain. And so, uh, today specifically and particularly, we're going to be looking here at this, what the New King James calls the turban of the high priest, what the old King James calls the mitre. And we see on this here a golden band or a crown which is on his forehead. Now before we get into that, there's one other uh, thing that we must look at. We mentioned very, very briefly, and I'll be brief again about this, and that is the Urim and Thummim. The mysterious Urim and Thummim. Now, the Urim and Thummim were placed inside this breastplate of judgment, which is attached to the ephod with golden, cha or with golden chain links onto the shoulder straps of the ephod and then onto this curious girdle here. Now, this was a, a double, a folded over piece of beautiful fine white linen that was embroidered. And inside the flap, could we say, inside the pouch, were the Urim and Thummim. Now, the Urim and Thummim, the words mean lights and perfection. Lights and perfection. Now, we don't know for sure what the Urim and Thummim were. We can't say exactly because the Bible doesn't actually describe them. However, uh, what we do know for sure is they were used, whatever they were, they were used to ascertain the will and the mind of God, particularly in crucial and vital times whenever an answer was absolutely needed. Often it would come down to using the Urim and the Thummim. Now, Rabbi Joseph Telushkin uh, says that oral tradition has handed down to us uh, this idea that they were two stones, a black stone and a white stone, and engraved upon the two stones were either yes or no or true or false, as simple as that. And they were held in the high priest's breastplate. Now, when we say the breastplate of judgment, actually the word judgment's a little bit misleading because we think of judgment, we tend to think of of uh, a sentence being passed down and punishment being enacted. But judgment here means discernment. Judging in the sense of discerning and understanding and giving insight and revelation into. And so this breastplate of judgment, these two, if we can use the term, this black and white stone with yes and no engraved upon it, they were used to discern and understand the mind of God. And mostly it would be the high priest would do this. Occasionally it was somebody else, but mostly, for the most part, it was the high priest. And so after a period of seeking the Lord and praying and searching the heart and going before God, however long that would take, then at the end of that, when the priest was satisfied that God had heard his prayer and was going to give direction and it would come right down to a yes or a no or a true or a false, then he'd go before God and he'd put his hand in here close to his heart and he'd pick out a stone and whatever that stone read, 
that was, he believed was God's choice and decision and God's will. Seems a very simple uh, thing to do, but obviously it would require prayer and trust and faith and believing as well. Now, we know that in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 30, which you don't need to turn to, we know that David in a particularly difficult moment in his life when he really, really needed to know and get an answer from God and discern the mind and will of God, he sent for Abiathar the priest and says, bring me the ephod, which of course is attached to the garments. But what he was really meaning was, bring me the ephod because that's where the Urim and Thummim is. And uh, he wanted to seek and find out the mind of God. So today, of course, we do not have an ephod. We do not have a breastplate of discernment. We have no Urim and Thummim. And yet we need to know the mind of God. We have got to ascertain the will of God for our lives. We need to know how God wants us to live, what he wants us to do, where he wants us to be. We need to know his purpose for our life. We need to know these things so that we can live as believers in this life knowing that we are walking and living in the will of God. Now, how do we do that? Well, Christ is now our light and perfection. He is our light and he is our right. And so we seek the Lord believing and trusting that He is our light and He will guide us right and He will show us what we're to do, where we're to be, how we're to live and all the rest of it. He is the one whom we seek. In Psalm 27 and 1 it says, The Lord is my light. And John 1 and 4 says about Christ that in His life there was light. In John 8 and 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And so today, just like in olden days, we need to know the will and purpose of God for our lives, and we need to look to Christ. Now, how does the Lord reveal his will to us? How does he do that in practical ways? How does that actually happen? Well, is it through his word? Undoubtedly. Is it through the Holy Spirit? For sure, absolutely. Is it through his providential leading and guiding? For sure it is. Oftentimes it's only when we look back that we see that providential leading of God to get us where we need to be. And so God has different ways and different methods and sometimes it's all of those together and more his ways of revealing to us his will and his purpose. And as we go on daily living as believers, trusting in him, hearing his voice through his word, speaking to us, having his guidance in our lives, feeling the promptings of the Holy Spirit, then we can walk in his will. Now there's something for your Tuesday night cell group as one of your questions about understanding and knowing and finding out the will of God. So now we come then, leaving the Urim and Thummim uh, behind. The Bible doesn't say a lot about it, other than what we have shared. But now we come to the high priest's headdress, uh, called a turban in the New King James, and maybe I don't know what translation you're using today, but in the old uh, AV then it was called the mitre. And the 
his sons, the ordinary priests, could we say, <coughs> they had hats, the New King James says, or bonnets, as the AV says. So they were different. And uh, we see here that in the high priest's mitre, we see this beautiful golden plate, this band which is around his forehead on the turban tied with a blue ribbon and on it it says holiness to the Lord. Now even though his sons, the other ordinary priests, if we can use that term, even though they had, uh, they had bonnets, they had little turbans too, but they didn't have this golden band. Uh, even though they were exquisite, the Bible says, and they were finely made, beautifully made, intricately, artistically made, it even says. Yet, in that sense, they were quite unadorned. They, they had no plate upon them. And so, we already know through our study in the past here that the white linen, the fine white linen, speaks of holiness and purity and righteousness. Holity, holy, holiness and purity and righteousness. Surely, surely no head deserve more to be adorned with white than the Lord Jesus Christ. Surely no man on earth was ever as holy or as righteous or as pure as the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you say amen? In fact, at his trial with Pilate, Pilate says, I find no fault in this man. Pilate's wife Warned in a dream, said to her husband, have nothing to do with this just man. Even one of the thieves on the cross says, we deserve what we're getting. But this man has done nothing amiss. Even Judas, who betrayed him, says in the end, I have betrayed innocent blood. Because he was pure and holy and righteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says, He who knew no sin was made sin for us. And Jesus, in his own words in John 8.46, said, Which of you convicts me of sin? And so no man on earth deserved more to wear white on his head than the Lord Jesus but you know, the white head, not only does it speak in the Bible of righteousness and purity and holiness, but the white head is also a symbol of wisdom. Listen up, all you gray heads this morning. All right? Proverbs 16, 31. The silver-haired head is a crown of glory. Amen? All right? <laughs> that make you happy, Clifford? <laughs> but there's a caveat here. The silver-haired head is a crown of glory if it is found in the way of righteousness. <laughs> so in other words, believer, as you get older, you should become more wiser, particularly spiritually speaking. That we're no longer novices or babes in Christ, but we have matured onto eating strong meat, not just the milk of the word. All right, so we're mature now. We ought to be. And as we grow older physically and our hair grows whiter 
and more silver as we go, so our spiritual head should be whiter as we go also. Proverbs 20, 29 says, The glory of young men is their strength, and the splendor of old men is their gray hair. <laughs> I never forget many years ago, we had a, it was midweek, I remember it was a Wednesday night, and we had a visiting speaker that was uh, invited through a friend of mine, even though I'd never met the man, and you always take a chance if you haven't met the speaker, but a good friend invited him, and I trusted my friend, and so invited him, and trouble was uh, he'd have me to introduce him, and I hadn't got a clue what to say about the man. And he was a tall, tall man, and he got a great hair, head of white hair. Actually, he had a very good prophetic ministry, the man. He was good. But I didn't know what to say, and I, I remember a statement from Frank uh, Borum, one of his books, he talked about this elderly gentleman who was white-headed. And so I quoted him and I said, The snows of many winters are upon his head. <laughs> he said, Brother, that was the worst introduction I've ever had anywhere in the world. <laughs> so are the snows of many winters are upon your head today. Spiritually, that ought to be your glory. Then in Revelation, we see the risen, glorified, exalted Christ standing and walking among the seven golden lampstands. And while he's doing that, he is dispensing his wisdom and his discernment and his judgment. And here's what it says about that in Revelation 1, 13 and 14. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white as wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. What a beautiful picture of the risen, glorified Christ in the midst of his church. And then we see the gold plate upon the, the mitre or the turban. Engraved with holiness to the Lord. Now the high priest was to wear this at all times. And whenever the people would bring to him their offerings and their sacrifices, when he wore this Beautiful golden band on his forehead, holiness unto the Lord. When he would take those gifts that were offered, then that would cause those gifts to be accepted by God on the people's behalf. He would be the intermediary to do that. And so when they would bring their gifts, he would receive them with his beautiful mitre and the golden band. And as he received them, he was the mediator between God and them. And as long as he received those gifts, then God received them and their sacrifices. Here we see Christ as our mediator. And we are accepted by God because Christ has accepted us. As we came to Christ and He received us, then the Father has received us for Christ's sake. Amen. He was our 
mediator. Mediator between God and men. There's only one, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. And so, thank God that we have our mediator today. Thank God that the head that once was crowned with thorns, as the song says, is crowned with glory now. Amen. Now, notice where Aaron, Aaron was to wear this beautiful gold plate on his forehead. The forehead is the seat not only of the intellect, but the seat of the will. When somebody is strong-willed and stubborn, we say what? We say they are hard-headed, bull-headed, pig-headed, meaning they're hard-headed. In Second Chronicles chapter 26, Good King Uzziah had reigned for 52 years. And he was one of the very few good kings. But after 52 years, pride began to rise up within him. And he took upon, him, took upon himself to go into the temple of the Lord with a censer to offer up Incense unto the Lord. And the high priest and the eighty priests came into the temple and rebuked him and told him that the Lord would be very highly displeased with his actions because no king was to perform the actions of a priest. And a priest was not to perform the actions of a king. You could be a king, you could be a priest, but you couldn't be both. And instead of, in humility, holding his hands up and realizing his awful, dreadful action, instead, in his pride and in his arrogance, he berated the priests and he was furious with them. And in his fury, when it rose up and he was angry and he was shouting at the priests, suddenly, God smote him with leprosy. It says in his forehead. In his forehead. See how he willfully went against the commandment of the Lord? And when the leprosy rose up in his forehead, the priests hurriedly tried to push him out the door. In fact, they didn't need much pushing because once he realized that he was afflicted, he couldn't get out there quick enough. And if you were to read that chapter in 2 Chronicles 26, verses 15 to 21 especially, you'll see that he was a leper until the day he died. And the leprosy was in his forehead. That was the worst place to have the leprosy. He had to live, it says, in a several house. He had to live separately from everybody else until the day he died. Why am I telling you this? 1 Peter 2.9 says, We are a chosen generation. We are a royal priesthood. Now, a little bit different. 
I just said that if you're a priest, you couldn't be a king. If you're a king, you couldn't be a priest. The only king-priest in the Old Testament was Melchizedek. We already discussed him. Who was a type of the Lord Jesus Christ who would be a king-priest. And because we are in Christ as believers, we have been made kings and priests unto God. Listen to what Revelation 1 and 6 says, To him who loved us and washed us from our own sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to God, his God and Father. So, as spiritually speaking, kings and priests unto God, then we ought to have stamped over our brows holiness to the Lord. The Lord said in Leviticus 11:44, "Be you holy as I am holy." Holiness of mind, of word, of deed, of character, that should be the crowning glory of our priesthood. That's what God looks for. That's what he looks for in our will and in our lives and our attitudes and our actions. Holiness to the Lord. Did you notice that the golden band, this golden plate, did you notice it was tied onto Aaron's mitre with a ribbon of blue? Remember how we said that blue often speaks of grace? You know, when the sky is full of dark, Thunder clouds, it's ominous, it's often frightening to look at, reminds us of judgment. But when the sky clears and it becomes bright and blue, it reminds us of grace. And so blue speaks of grace. And Aaron could only serve God and Israel in holiness by grace. And you and I, as believers, can only serve God and people in holiness by grace. To live a holy life, we need the grace of God. And God wants us to live a holy life. He demands it. Within ourselves it's not possible, but by the grace of God it is possible. Now the trouble is, as soon as you think of holiness, you think of something that's dour and, and, you know, and, and very serious and judgmental. Jesus was the most holy person that ever left, lived in the face of the earth. And he was very, very attractive, wasn't he? He attracted people. His holiness didn't put people away. He attracted people. It drew people to him. And the children, even the little children, it drew the children to him. So if our lives are holy, it doesn't mean we walk about with a great big face like a lurking spade, we say, and we're dressed in black and we're miserable. If we're holy, it should be attractive. Now Jesus didn't need a ribbon of blue because he was completely holy. He was holy, holy. His character, 
his nature, his attitude, his words, his very life, every moment of every day, exemplified holiness. You say, what does holiness look like? Read about Jesus in the Bible. That'll show you what holiness looks like in flesh. Him. But you and I need the ribbon of blue. We need the grace to be able to live as he lived in this life. And then we see, actually we don't see, but we read about linen trousers or linen breeches, as the AV says. Now these obviously were undergarments. And it says they, they went from the waist to the thighs. So if I could put it in modern day terminology, these would be like a pair of fine white linen boxer shorts. That's what they would be like. Maybe a little bit longer than boxers, probably come down to just, just above the knee to cover all of the thigh and the waist. And it says they were to cover their nakedness. To cover their nakedness. Now, these breaches were not just simply for hygienic purposes. Because if that was the case, then the linen coat would have done that. Any of those garments would have done that. When it says it was to cover their nakedness, it's not just talking about hygiene. Symbolically, it's talking about covering the flesh. Covering the flesh. Now, spiritually speaking, now the word flesh uh, has various meanings in Scripture. Sometimes it means, the Bible tells us, but all flesh means all humanity. Sometimes it literally means your skin and bone. Like if leprosy came upon their flesh, it would be upon their skin and bone. But more often or not, flesh is talking about the carnal nature. The carnal nature. Uh, that old nature. That sinful nature. It speaks of the baser things that could be in our lives. It could be pride. Maybe arrogance, an unbridled tongue, wrong desires, worldly ambition. All of these things are carnal, the Bible talks about, fleshly. And, uh, and so if you're wondering what would constitute flesh, then you can look no further than Galatians chapter 5. It gives you a whole list of things that are flesh. Verse 16 of Galatians 5, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh lusts after the, against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary one to the other, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, Sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. 
of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's just some of the things that are the works of the flesh. If you read on, he talks then about the fruit of the Spirit as an as a opposite to all of that. And so, the flesh had to be covered. When we minister before the Lord and before the people for the Lord, our flesh should never be on show. For the life of me, it's hard to understand some things that are done in the name of the Lord these days, how it ever gets the following. Because most of it, as Paul says, is just a fair show in the flesh. And if it's puffed up and drummed up and hyped up, you can be sure God's not in it. But flesh appeals to flesh. Fleshly actions appeal to fleshly people. Carnal things appeal to carnal people. Maybe that's how that gets a following. But did you ever notice how Jesus never did anything for show he never did anything for man's applause. Never. You remember how Satan in the wilderness temptations, you remember how he wanted him to show himself? You know, if you're the son of God, why don't you cast yourself down at the pinnacle of the temple here? Should the angels will swoop in and save you before your feet hits the floor? You know what I mean? Or, or why didn't you bow down and worship me and then all the kingdoms of the world will be yours? Or, or why don't you say you're very hungry after this 40-day fast? Why don't you just turn those stones into bread right now? Why don't you just do that? I mean, you're hungry. Nobody's here. Nobody will see you. You're hungry. You wouldn't even do it even in front of the devil. Wouldn't do anything for show. Wouldn't do anything for to be hyped up. Not for man's applause. Now, he did many wonderful works, many miraculous things publicly in front of everybody, but not for a show. And so here we have these wonderful garments, both that which we could see and that which we can't see. There's a part of our life that is open to all. There's a part of our life that's very public as believers. There's a part of our life that everybody reads in our workplace, school, uni. But then there's a part of our life that's hidden, that nobody sees only God. And as kings and as priests unto the Lord, then we've got to make sure Absolutely, that no flesh is showing. I want to finish the study together just by simply reading just a few verses from Hebrews chapter 7. In Hebrews chapter 7, Speaking of Christ being our great high priest, verse 23 of Hebrews 7, it says, Also there were many priests, because they were prevented by death from continuing. 
But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as a high priest men who have weaknesses, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heavens, of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For, he said, see, you make all things according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, insomuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. Now just a couple more scriptures and we're through. Chapter 9, verse 11. But Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Amen. So there we have it. The high priest in the Old Testament, a type and a symbol of our Lord Jesus Christ, our great eternal high priest who sits at the right hand of God, who ever lives to make intercession for us. Amen. Amen.